are back. Welcome back. It has been some time since the two of us have materialized. The ion storm is passing and I can hear you again. Rob. We can fight. We have finally cleared through that ion storm back into the nerdy realm that is subspace radio. I'm Rob Lloyd and with me as always is Kevin Yank. How are you? Hello. Hello. I'm very well. Um, I've watched a whole series of Star Trek since we last spoke. As have I. We set ourselves the task of waiting for Picard, but we did not just sit idle. We were given the duty to go back and watch the show that we have mentioned quite a lot in this podcast and finally ratcheted into our memories now and a part of our the ever-growing continuity of Star Trek. We have gone back and watched the infamous animated series, series one and two from the early 70s of Star Trek. Yeah, it was the last piece of Star Trek I hadn't seen. So now it's all in my brain. This is big. This is a big moment. I'm glad to be yeah. sharing it with you. I was feeling more and more guilty about having not seen it as Lower Decks and other bits and pieces of recent Star Trek have referenced it fleetingly. And I've gone, oh, that's something I don't recognize. No longer. I will get all of the little references. Well, that was the thing. Mostly while we, mostly while we were doing Lower Decks, you were the one informing me going, this is a particular reference to the animated series that I have not seen, but... Right. Quetzalcoatl in that big lizard flying creature appears in the Lower Decks episode where they are hallucinating stuff in the mind's minds. Yes. And uh, yeah, all the reviews online said, that's Quetzalcoatl from the animated series. I'm like, that seems like a weird thing to be in Star Trek. <laughs> and sure enough, it was a weird thing to be in Star Trek. Yes, it was. The, and An Emmy Award winning weird thing. We will say it again. Yes, Star Trek, the animated series is an Emmy Award winning show. Most of the, any other Star Trek shows that have won Emmys have won it from a technical or production point of view. Whereas Star Trek, the animated series won outright in 1975 outstanding entertainment children's series so take that next gen take that deep space nine you really should start with the animated series i think is what we've learned yes yes <laughs> even though it's set after yeah yes so there's a fascinating story to be told about how this show came about. Uh, how it do you want to start with a story or do you want to start with like your high level impression? Yeah, I think, I think, well, we're dropping our usual format of talking about the, an episode and then breaking into the larger topic. We're going to give our, our first impression thoughts. Then we'll do a little bit of a dive into how we got to there and then we'll pick our favorite episodes. And yes, we will focus on a clunker. Yeah. <laughs> so, we sure will. All right. Great. So, Kevin, it has been a massive build up. We have mentioned it so many times in our podcast, and you have been a Star Trek fan all your life. But now, finally, in the year of our whatever representation you believe in or don't believe it, 2023, you finally watch the animated series. First impressions. First impressions. There were stronger episodes to be had here than I expected to find. But the overall feeling I had watching this was bemusement that this was made for Saturday morning television. Yeah. Just that somehow a series of artists was given a budget to make this for kids to watch with their bowl of cereal on a Saturday morning. It stands out to me as a historical anomaly, the scale of which has not been repeated in Star Trek history, for sure. 
It's, it is an anomaly because, but it's amazing how actually modern it is in the way of we are used to now as nerds and with our IPs and our franchises and how they go, that we have multiple media to consume of that, whether it be novels or comic books or TV shows or animated TV shows or feature films or interactive VR experiences. And yes, we have just spent the last couple of months reviewing two animated spin-offs of Star Trek. But this is where it all began in the 70s. And for this, it was quite unique. Oh, it's long before Star Wars hit the screens and before Star Wars had their attempt at spin-offs in animated form with droids and Ewoks and stuff. But now it's commonplace. Like one of my favorite incarnations of Star Wars that I hedge back and forth is the animated series Rebels, which is set just before episode one and Rogue One. And that's produced for kids entertainment, family entertainment, but it deals with some heavy issues. So going back to watch it now after spending so much time within this animated spin-off world, it was quite exciting because you're there yeah. going, oh my God, they got pretty much everyone, apologies to Walter Gore, they got the original cast back. So you are hearing William Shatner, you are hearing yeah. Leonard Nimoy. You are hearing DeForest Kelly. You're hearing the original cast, except for Walter. So, so sorry, Walter. <laughs> sorry, Walter. So to see, it's quite now a modern thing, but then it was so unique. It was Yeah, so but I hear what you're saying about comparing it to the Star Wars, that there are surprisingly modern stories or topics being covered, because that's true here as well. It's, it is clear in every respect, from technical to, to storytelling, they were up against the constraints of Saturday morning cartoons. You could tell the vision was large and they got as much of it they could do in the time and money they had to put into it. I have found a lot of the writers were excited to come back on board who were yeah. part of the original series going, oh, we're not restricted by, yeah. by real sets and makeup. We can come up with anything. And then it goes, yes, you can come up with any creature you want, but still it's done on a filmation budget. And, yes. uh, and it has to not, not offend the parents too much. Yeah. It was very interesting to read. They got on board DC Fontana, incredible. Yeah. yeah. His legendary writer of television and Star Trek. And they had her on board as an executive producer and script editor. And her main point was let, because it's for more family, more kids gear. Let's actually make it family. So let's take out any of that William Shatner sex appeal or, or oily, oily but George stuff, Takei. Stuff slipped through, Rob. Stump you did, could, stuff did there slip were through. There's some very conspicuous things slipping through that was like, oh, that stands out given that everything else is here is for kids. But that one lady is borderline harassing Captain Kirk. I, I'm glad you brought that up, and I'll be talking about that a bit further on, and it's not in my good episodes. Okay, very good. Um, look, the other impression that I really got here was the handmade craftsmanship of what it ends up on screen here. Like, you can see the layers of film as a cell moves over a painted background. And unfortunately, that little hair that was stuck to the cell moves with it. That's my favorite thing. Like, yeah, seeing the grit, <laughs> the profile Enterprise goes across. It goes, oh, that grit's yeah. going with it. Yeah. 
And there were a grand total of four shots of the Enterprise here, more or less, except for the very occasional episode-specific artwork. And similarly, there were four music cues that yes. were used in every single episode. And not the actual original Star Trek music. I know. It took me so long to warm up to it because it felt like a bizarro universe version of Star Trek because of the music. That theme was stuck in my head for weeks. And mm. as soon as I finished watching it, it's gone. But yeah. I kept the ball, ball. It's like every piece of that music. I think there was only three pieces of music they created and they just yeah. repeated that for the entire yeah, yeah. number of episodes. But yeah, there was like, especially after our talk about the last two animated series, which had so many beautiful space vistas and planet shots and all this type of stuff to go back to. That's the profile image going well, that way across the screen. <laughs> yeah, and it. now it's going back the other way. Yeah. And that one rather clunky, but I kind of liked it. The shot of the ship kind of swooping in on an angle. Yeah. And going, and we, we go over the bridge. Yeah. yeah. So, you see, so it had to involve perspective and... And I'm pretty sure, I don't know if there's any way to know this for sure all these years later, but it looks to me like that was rotoscoped directly from a shot from the original yes, series. Yeah. There is a, in the first few episodes of the original series, there's a few places where we do swoop over the bridge like that. Yes. And it looks to me like they frame by frame traced it from yeah, the animated series. Pretty much. It looked like that. And that type of stuff I like when they go outside of, because... TV animation in the 60s, 70s, and 80s was how cheap can we do it? And uh, so especially, yeah. especially Filmation, who were, this is the company long before their success with He-Man and Ghostbusters, not that Ghostbusters, the Ghostbusters, the other one. <laughs> Let's go Ghostbusters. Anyway, and Shira and all that type of stuff. So yeah. I like that, that rotoscoping, that little bit of rough Bakshi style animation of taking footage and animating it into real i like that kind of guerrilla style animation but i'm a big fan of the dark ages of disney as well where they did a lot of facsimile animation and stuff which is looked down upon by animators but it's a sort of rough and ready way of doing things which i but that's my sort of like independent theater yeah i liked it too i think the sh the ship stuff has aged better than some of the character animation there's definite i think i've mentioned it before there are running sequences where it's a solid minute of tiny black stick figures moving yes. across a static background to music. Yes. And it's meant to be gripping, but it, it is quite fast forwardable. And, and, the and the repetition of the extreme close-up on one side of the screen and the same shot of Spock looking into a monitor and slightly looking up. It, I don't see that that cat woman with her whispery creep. If I don't see Mares ever again, it will be too soon. So <laughs> just go. She is the progenitor of Arcation Doctor on the Lower Decks. Exactly. But there's just some- Dr. Tahana, way more fun than Mares. A lot I more, think, yeah, a lot more sweary. She, and Tahana blinks a lot more as opposed to this one who just stares <laughs> with her yeah. yellow eyes. And yeah. whispers. Speaking of the actors, it is amazing that we got most of the cast back. Hattie, how would you feel being Walter? I think he would have been on the list, but he wasn't in the first season of the original series. And so if someone had to go, I guess Walter had to go. Uh, he said, I was very upset at the way I found out I wasn't part of the show at yeah. a convention. Everybody thought someone else had told me, apparently. 
Dorothy thought Gene had. Gene thought Dorothy had. To save money, Filmation wanted Majel to do Uhura's voice and also Jimmy to do Sulu's voice, since in cartoons at the time, you got paid one check to do two characters' voices. To Leonard's credit, he said he would not do the series unless they hired George and Nichelle, since they had been there from the beginning. See, it's so weird that it's been forgotten, then it was ridiculed, then it's been found by us. And I give it a lot of love, but, and you want it to, you want it to be what kind of animation stuff is now, but it's not It's yeah. at that time when animation was looked down upon. Saturday morning cartoons were looked down upon. It was just a paycheck. People were missed yeah. out. They wanted to keep out the African American woman and the, the Asian American actor that. Yeah. Nemo, funny that. Yeah. And the, <laughs> one of the things I read Nimoy brought that up. And Filmation went, oh, well, no, actually, we are very much into showing representation and stuff like that. So, of course, oh, we that was just not meant to be a miss. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And there yeah. you go. It's a shame that, you know. That's the thing about bias. It's usually unconscious. Exactly. Exactly. So, they, yeah, apparently Filmation said they only had enough money for that amount of cast. And also, yeah. And to- you can tell because that cast is doing every other voice as well. I was, yeah, going to say, you can hear Jane doing multiple voices and Nichelle does multiple characters and of course uh, Mrs. Roddenberry had to be in the cast as well so we had Nurse Chapel there at- Jimmy Dewan in an interview I have from the 50 year mission the oral history of Star Trek he talks about how the fact that if you did three characters they only had to pay you once but if you did a fourth character they had to pay you twice so he was always trying to get that fourth character oh my gosh <laughs> all the economics of animation in the 70s but yeah i read like they never recorded in the same studio i don't think they even recorded in the same cities like some of the interviews talk about later in the run leonard nimoy would just drop by a recording studio in whatever city he happened to be in and read his lines to the microphone put his hat on and walk to his car and that was his experience <laughs> with the animated series it's very he's very much like an episode of the simpsons where crusty just walks in record yeah. yeah just speaks all his lines for his thing and then walks off and they haven't even put the reel in yet for the fans for the writers it must have felt like a return to the thing that they thought they had lost for the actors i feel like it in many respects must have felt like a paycheck just another paycheck yeah it does it does seem to come across because it doesn't seem like they got together it doesn't seem like any of them were particularly there's the sense i get is that they were talked into it and they were like really saturday morning cartoons is this the bottom of the barrel and the creators were like no stay with us trust us we are doing real star trek here with real stories stuff that matters you're going to be proud of the work and they were said okay we'll take your word for it and yet the experience was nevertheless just showing up and reading your lines in the booth. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because it's been the punchline of jokes for so long, and I'm guilty of that, of making fun of the animated series but never actually seeing it. But now I've got a little bit more respect for it that they were trying to be so serious that the scripts, especially in that first season, I remember we talked a little bit that there's a little bit of a shift in in season two to a bit more jovial, a bit more jokey. I found it was... With exceptions, it was really hitting its stride by that second season. There's a lot more bumps and weird tone moments in the start of this series than towards the end where it felt like they had found the formula. Well, especially like that first episode, I'm going forth. For me, that first episode was really hard to get through. I'm just there going, 
it was very dull. Yeah. But then the second episode is the yesteryear. Yes, yesteryear, which is, there you go, that's what you want to see. We want the big vistas of what Vulcan looks like. We tell some epic stories you wouldn't have been able to tell before. Exactly. And a lot of yeah. sequel stuff. So return to... Uh, again, playing to the kids, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know who kids want to see again? Mud. They want to see That's Mud right. return. <laughs> and Cyrano Jones. Cyrano Jones. The kids have been yeah. crying themselves to sleep for years since the cancellation uh, going, whatever happened to Cyrano Jones, daddy? Walter Koenig was not cast in the series, but he was thrown the bone of a script, The Infinite Vulcan. And you can't see him, listeners, but Rob is making a face. It's, yeah, uh, it almost made my stinker list. It was... Ra Walter didn't think much more of it, is what I'm reading here. This was the one script I wrote for the show, and it was incredibly frustrating. Gene decided early on, this is animation, so we can do anything we want, so let's have talking plants. And I put in the talking plants and did 10 drafts of the script. And at the time, I didn't know what writers were going through on Star Trek. I stuck with it, and we finally got it done. They did, in fact, offer me another script, and I said no. I passed. I couldn't go along with all the arbitrary decisions that didn't make the script any better, not that it was extraordinary to begin with. So, to an extent, it was an interesting learning experience, but it was painful. I was also still upset about not being a part of the series. Of course. <laughs> so, it's heartbreaking to hear how it all turned out, that it was just thrown together and they just had to work with the money they had. And they had the, like you said, big plans, big, sweeping, epic ideas in their head of we can go anywhere we can have any creature any location we're not limited by and we did get that here there is a lot of that here they they do try to have so many non-humanoid creatures to have two non-humanoid crew members not all of it's successful there are some things that it's true you couldn't do them before and you can do them now but should you do them is a separate question <laughs> so i'm very yeah. interested to hear because you're so in tune with the original series how you found those nods those sequel follow-ups and those references that have now carried on because there are some things that were mentioned that's the type of stuff i love things that were mentioned in the animated series that have now become canon yeah. Equal part hits and misses is what I would say. Mm. There are some things that it was like, wow, a sequel to Shore Leave. I did not, I would never have asked for this, but it feels <laughs> like Christmas morning. <laughs> and then there were other things that felt rather thin and didn't add anything that wasn't already present in the previous series. I thought the Tribbles episode had some yucks for the kids, but did it add a lot to what Tribbles give to our lives? I don't think so. Well, I think we I got, would rather we go got, back and watch the original episode. We did found out we had a massive, like, Voltron Tribble. So, well, yeah, so their big mind is we can have whatever budget we want. Let's make Tribbles bigger. And speaking of Harry Mud, like, the second episode of the original series was rapey enough. And they thought, you know what we really need? You know what we really need to return to is Harry Mudd and his date rape drugs. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it is a shame that when you go back to watch this, go, oh, no, that's right. This is in the height of the 70s. This is the height of patriarchal privilege and scenes of Nurse Chapel. No, you don't get it. It's better because it's Nurse Chapel who is date raping 
Spock. Exactly. That's better. That's better. And but she's it's easily, empowering. She's so easily manipulated by the guy. No, she's not manipulated. <laughs> she's taking the power. Like scenes where she's like drowning when they're miniatures, and she, the yeah. only way she the only way that she can get out is being saved by Kirk. And you're going, yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> yeah. Just looking at my other notes about like the origin of this series, my my closest reading of what I could find is that. This came about really part of a of the campaign to bring back Star Trek. Ever since it was canceled in the third season and the fans wanted more, Gene was looking for how could it return? Could it return as another series? Could it return as a film? None of that was happening, but there was just this little crack that opened up in NBC's armor and someone said, we need a strong entry for NBC's Saturday morning lineup. <laughs> and... I think probably when it was first suggested, let's bring Star Trek to Saturday morning cartoons. It's doing surprisingly well in the young demographics in reruns. In reruns yeah. I bet the kids would love a Star Trek show made for them. That probably made sense. Yes. But somewhere between that idea and what ended up on screen, there were some negotiations and Gene Roddenberry managed to pull in just the right amount of favors, and he got full creative control, yes. which was really unusual for cartoons at the time. It was, my understanding is, unusual for Roddenberry at the time, who had burned some bridges and the relationship with the studios was strained already. But somehow, some way, he managed to get a commitment of full creative control on this, and he said, great, we've done it. Now we're going to, Forget that we're making a Saturday morning cartoon. We are making Star Trek again. Yes. That is what we are here the to do. The unofficial season is full. Yeah. And I, I, we will never have the ratings numbers or the memos from the studio to prove it. But my guess is what happens is this thing went out to Saturday morning and died because it wasn't made for the audience that was watching at yep. that time. So the world did get a secret fourth season of Star Trek, but uh, as as we learned in our own experience, almost no one watched it, no. not even us fans, and and so much the poorer for it. Exactly, yeah, and it had to be. It was if it wasn't for Star Wars, then this new lifeblood of the show wouldn't have happened. And it's the constant thing about Roddenberry as well. So like his that balance of his belief in the show and his fight for it, but also the bridges he burns. And so it got to the point where he had a lot of control in the motion picture. And because it didn't do that well, then they went complete other angle and he was pretty much shut out like mm -hmm. unceremoniously yeah. with Star Trek two and became the greatest Star Trek movie of all time. But it went so far away from whatever Roddenberry was so had his vice-like grip on this is what Star Trek needs to be. Uh, it, yeah, it's fascinating to see that the animated series is just a continuation of that cycle that he gets power, he, he burns bridges, he builds up that power again, he burns more bridges. It's a fascinating little glimpse into the, how that man worked within the creative industry. The second season is only six episodes, which to our modern eye looks like, oh, that's bad. Like, <laughs> they got... They got Ooh. a big first season and the network pulled the plug after just six episodes. They didn't even get halfway through the second season. What my research tells me is that 
After the initial large-ish order, animated series were made and approved in batches of six episodes. Right. So it is normal for season two to be six episodes. That is a full second season right. as it was made at the time. Nevertheless, they did not get renewed for a third. Right. Does it diminish after that? So then season three is only three episodes. No, they would just do six, <laughs> six more at a time. Right. And okay. it had to do with lead times and scheduling and stuff like that. Dorothy Fontana and Gene Roddenberry, the two main creative forces of the first season, stepped away in the second season. Yes. So a lot of the interviews from Dorothy say, I don't really know. I can't speak for the second season. It might be bad. It might be great. I had no creative input. And a different director and, as well. They had like yeah. Hal Sutherland for the first season and yeah. Bill Reed for the next six. And she, she says, all I know is that they did a bunch of the scripts we rejected in season two, but I think it turned out surprisingly well. The one kind of creative force that seemed present throughout is David Gerald, who fans will know is the author, the writer of the original Trouble with Tribbles. Mm. He came back and wrote two episodes of this series, but but he was there from beginning to end and was there for the whole ride. Yes. And the, I like that type of the, those connections of... of the writers who were part of the animated series staying on. And there was very much top heavy in that first season with yeah. so many of those classic writers coming back. And yeah, it's a shame not all of them stuck around. My only other thought is that getting the lingo of Star Trek, like what does the language sound like? What does the terminology sound like? It took them a while to get back into the groove. Those first few episodes are really heavy with unusually specific scientific language. Like they didn't quite have the techno babble pinned down. It was a little too techno, it's, a little too sciencey. It's very dense. There are some moments yeah. where they're using like really hardcore science terms. I'm going, Sheesh. I, it yeah. felt like someone had, they, it was their personal mission to make Star Trek more scientifically accurate. And the animated series was where they were let loose. Yes. And it was, it just made it, Awkward is the word that comes to mind, but it was, yeah, it took you, took me out of it that these characters were saying things that did not sound like things they, those characters would say. No. And it did sound like I have a scientific prognosis. Oh, and I have a scientific read to add to that. I go, oh, yeah. scientifically it could be this as well. And going, come on. Come on. It's guys. not the science that makes Star Trek great. Yeah, exactly. So let's go into it. Let's let's do an episode we like each. I mean, there's there's so few episodes here. There's 22 of them. I feel like we could just one by one count them down. And if we come to one that is one of our favorites or one of our clunkers, okay. we could talk about it at that point. Let's do it. All right. Number one, Beyond the Farthest Star. You groaned about it earlier. It was so dull. I'm there going, oh, this is where we're starting. A ship that's been dead for however long and just looking at it going, oh, what happened with this and there? And, yeah. Oh. I wrote, pace is shockingly slow for a 30-minute cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm there going, are we still, oh, wow, we're only five minutes in. It felt like they couldn't quite believe they were making Star Trek and they forgot to bring a story to the table. Yes, very much. Yeah. All right. But not a high or a low for either of us? No. Yesteryear, number two. Really good one. Really, yeah. yeah, a nice little reference to the city at the edge of forever and going back into Spock's past. And that great, it's a great thing, especially with uh, Next Generation and stuff like that, where they talk about, oh, oh, Kirk and he's traveling back in time and they're like blase about it. Like, even <laughs> yeah, let's just do it. Yeah. And he goes back and he meets himself. So there's no paradox there. He's just an <laughs> uncle. 
<laughs> That's right. I remember myself. Yeah, it's amazing. And his pet is incredible. And I, 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 they killed the pet. <laughs> yeah, I know. The pet sacrifice. So. That is a good thing in the right context, treated with the right delicateness for kids to watch on a Saturday morning. Like there's, that is a life experience that kids are going to have to face and having seen dispassionate Spock deal with it maturely is a, it's a good learning opportunity. And did they bring, I don't know if you'd call it fun. No, it was very much leaning into this is an episode that could have been on the original series if it weren't animated, but yeah, the detail of the, like the almost like tiger type pet was mm. fascinating to see. Did they actually get Mark Leonard back to do the voice of... They did. Sarah? Yeah. Mark Leonard. I did not know to expect another Star Trek performance from Mark Leonard posthumously to enter my world. And uh, wow, that was a delight. He was great. He's a wonderful, wonderful actor. Yesteryear is frequently called out as the best episode of the animated series. It was the one I was... My hopes were up for. And I don't know if it's because my hopes were high that I found it a little lacking. It still had some of those shaky legs of the early episodes of this series that I was talking about. For me, it came across as, as I was watching it, I was there going, this would be one that the fans would really hook into. But yeah, it was a little bit still figuring its feet out. Number three, one of our planets is missing. Yes, how did you uh, feel about this one? I thought it was very much like an original series episode, probably because it was a mashup of two of them. It was <laughs> the Immunity Syndrome, the giant space amoeba, yes. and it was Devil in the Dark, No Kill Eye, yes. the Horta. It was really like those two, what if we take what's good about two great episodes of Star Trek and mash them together to make another one? Yes. So it was all right. It was Three episodes in, it was already the second time they threatened to self-destruct the ship. And so I would call it a middle of the pack. Not bad, not great. Yeah, yeah. the only note of it, it was about the self-destruct thing that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, it's canon for us, for our yeah. podcast. But other than that, nothing of note, really. Number four, the Lorelei signal. Now, this is the big one. This is a big one that we have mentioned before. Yes. This is, a, it's a little bit Brigadoon, but it's also a little bit, that's what happens when the women take over. Yes. The men are incapacitated by a sexy signal and the women have to save the day. Yes. Yeah. And the, of the women as in the two women on the, on, yes. on there. So it's just. Majel Barrett and Nichelle Nichols have to <laughs> save the day. And one of them is playing four parts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're hearing that voice in so many different pitches and tones. There was a scene in which Uhura talked to the computer that was also Uhura and then talked to another character that was also Uhura, or it was all Nichelle Nichols. She played three voices in one scene talking to each other. And I only noticed it the second time I watched the episode, which is a testament to her ability to do multiple voices. Not every original series cast member has that skill. She did very well. And that she, in many ways, she's close to being the MVP of this series. The multiple voices she did and how different yeah. they were. Yeah, Jimmy doing you need a bit of work. Um, <laughs> For all that, not a great episode. No, look, say. that's the thing. It's it's something we were looking forward to and excited about because this is the one where the only way that, uh, that Uhura can actually be the position of third in command is that the men, all the men, are incapacitated by sexy aliens. And the way she saves the day is she disobeys one order, beams down, and asks the men what to do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's that clumsy view of the future from a very yeah. dated way of doing things. There's a classic 
Doctor Who story from the 60s with Patrick Troughton that yeah. got so far to being made but was cancelled at the end. It's called The Space Prison, where it goes to a planet where, good Lord, all the women are the dominating power. And the female <laughs> companion gets caught up by their radical thinking where women are the top dogs. And the yeah. only way for her to be broken out of their hypnotic phase was to be smacked on the bottom by the doctor. So yes. thankfully, nice. that episode was never made. <laughs> the plot of this episode makes about the same amount of sense, <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> uh, number five, more triples, more troubles. I, you sure it's not called Mo Tribbles, Mo Trouble? <laughs> Might. <laughs> <laughs> Where there are a lot of mustaches. <laughs> yes. So the, we got the Klingons here in their old fashioned type of almost sounding a bit piratey. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah. Kirk. That's how Klingons were back then. They were. They were very much like that. So just a good reminder for me to go, oh, that's right. They were very, <laughs> yeah, lots of mustache twirl. Like I was saying before, I felt this was much more forced than the original. It was, it, they were a little too self satisfied with how good the original episode was. And it was just like, if they reference the same jokes and give you a bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, it makes a good story. And it doesn't really. This was not a story that needed to be told, is what I wrote to myself here. It was a cheap rehash of what made the original one popular. But for what it was, it was okay. There were ships flying around, machinations. They had the Tribble Eater, and then they had the Giant Tribble. Yes. Yeah, there was some fun to be had, but... And it's a bit, yeah. again, I'll say the word clumsy, like... At this point, the Klingons were just like pretty much pure bad. So they're but the butt of all jokes. I think there's another yeah. one as well with the Klingons or the Romulans. And like at the end, it's just a case of, oh, well, they're going to have to deal with it now. Wah, wah. I'm going, no, they've actually been left in a very dangerous situation. And oh, okay. No, we're joking about it. Okay. Because they're bad guys. <laughs> yeah. The next one is number six. We haven't hit any of our tops or bottom episodes yet. No, no. I'm very interested to I'll see if we have a have a jinx and whether we hit the same one. The next one is The Survivor, number six, with Carter Winston. Or was it Winston Carter? I kept getting confused. The guy had two first names. That Yes, that's it. The, wh pretty much, you're correct on both fronts. Yeah. I'm frankly, I am looking up this episode because it was that memorable. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, I'm a bit like that as well. I do remember. This is the one where they rescued the famous guy who turned out to be a shape-shifting alien spy from the Romulans. And he found his previous wife his girlfriend who ha just happened to be on the enterprise happened yeah. to be and never wife, appeared wife again. or girlfriend i can't remember which yes might have been fiance yes and then it's revealed that he's a shape-shifting spy and he's trying to break up with her and yeah yes that's all i remember as well there was a moment in this where bones was surprisingly not grumpy and it was a plot point <laughs> kirk and spock know how many bio beds they have in sick bay better than mccoy does so the shapeshifter was hiding as a bed in sick bay that's and mccoy right. didn't notice but kirk and spock did i kind of love how many white women nichelle nichols played in this series but no uhura in this episode there that's was right. rest though so I get the sense they some they needed something for Majel Barrett to do every episode. And sometimes that meant playing Mires, even though Nichelle Nichols was present for the episode. Yeah. Look, it is a little bit of that glorious nepotism coming through right there. They're mm. going, the Roddenberry's going, gotta make room for the wife. Come on. Interesting choice to have the Romulan battle cruisers still share a ship design with Klingon ships, even in animation. Yes. 
Like that, it was something they did to save money in the original series. They reused the models and shot them with a slightly different colored light on them. So they looked bluer and therefore Romulan. Yeah. And the fans made up a story that the Romulans stole the technology or bought the technology from the Klingons, whatever it is. But we'll do that. Here you, here you got the opportunity to draw anything you want. And they drew the same ship design, just with a di- like a lightning bolt on the side. Yeah, exactly. They just went, that's what we've used instead of going, let's think big about everything. Yeah, it is a bit limited with the way of imagination goes. My favorite line is, well, he's a shapeshifter, so one would have to assume he could become a deflector shield. (laughs) Yes. And for all that, the, the my parting thought on this one, the Spock McCoy smack talk at the end almost made the whole episode. Yeah, very wild. much. So. That was very. This was the first time they really leaned into that in the animated series. They remembered what they had with Spock and McCoy, and yeah, they did a full on comedy bit between the two of them at the end here. It was a great way to finish. A, all right, it uh, yeah, a forgettable one. Number seven, The Infinite Vulcan. We've already talked a bit about this one. Yeah, this nearly got on my bad list. I'm just there going, why do we have giant Spocks? And I had heard rumors about a giant Spock, a Spock 2. And I read about it at some point, and I thought, that is stupid. And then I immediately forgot it until... I was confronted with it in this episode. Surprisingly little Spock in an episode entitled The Infinite Vulcan. Yeah, I think it's a balanced thing. So time-wise, they spread him out through the whole episode. I really hope this gag works. So because they had less time for him, that means he could go taller. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's a mount of Spock by square inches. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. the body mass has to be shifted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets carried off by a screaming dragon, and those things came back again and again with the same sound effect played over and over. But yeah, Spock gets carried off at the start of this episode, then most of the episode goes by, and then we meet giant Spock at the end, and Spock talks Spock out of being evil. Yes, of course. It's, yeah. It's the the giant scientist who was evil, but then not evil. And for some reason, he's wearing a loincloth. And it's very strange. It's odd. It's very odd. Yeah, it's weird. And yeah. And Walter I, Koenig, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. And most of it you had to rewrite anyway. So we'll blame Gene. This one had this super awkward Sulu joke at the end where Kirk says, Sulu, you're one of the most scrutable people I know which is leaning into the racist stereotype of the inscrutable Asian. Yep, yep. Oh, oh Awkward. Uh, number eight, the magics of Megas 2. Now, this was weird, right? This was like... Super weird. This, this is Lucifer. This is Lucifer. They're dealing with gender and sexual politics aside of how limited it was. This is like dealing with, let's feel sorry for the, the devil. Yeah. It's weird. It was so it, weird. It is weird. This is my clunker. That was your clunker? Uh, Yeah. This is my clunker. The Enterprise meets Lucifer at the center of the galaxy and crosses over into a realm of magic. Spock figures out that if you squint hard enough, you can do magic in this magic realm. Eventually, they end up being tried as witches in Salem. In Salem? Yes, that's right. Yep. And the only other thought I wrote here is there's a lot of pseudo-religious nonsense here. It's a lot. It's not. Yeah, it's. For me, it wasn't even pseudo. It was very ham-handed, ha- ham-fisted, hardcore yeah. religious stuff thrown in there, and it did not match at all. I mean, this clearly. is Star Trek Five. Yeah, several decades earlier. 
They didn't learn. And well, clearly they couldn't remember. It's the same bad idea, but compared to this, they did it surprisingly well in Star Trek V. Yeah, that's the thing. Clearly they must have forgotten all about it because if when uh, Shatner approached with the script, they would have gone, oh, no, we did that before, man. <laughs> we did that one. It wasn't good. But they clearly <laughs> forgot about good. it. And they went, yeah, okay, well, let's give... No, let's appease Shatner. I don't think anyone was excited about it. They just went, okay, let's just write five off. If okay. I never see Lucien, which is the name they gave Lucifer to make it palatable to the censors, if I never see Lucien extend his arms again, He did it will so be much of that. Oh, my gosh. And spelling magic differently. Was that something to do with the senses as well? Maybe. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, there is some interview fodder on this one of just like, whenever anyone went to Gene for ideas, he wanted to do The Crew Meets God. And the network said, it can't be God. This is Saturday morning television. <laughs> and he said, how about the devil? And they said, can you give him a different name? <laughs> But no, bad one. This is my worst episode of the yeah, original series. Yeah, it was series. pretty much in my clunker as well, but there's one a bit later on that I just went, ooh, yeah. Yeah. Number nine, Once Upon a Planet, the sequel to Shore Leave. Now, I haven't seen Shore Leave, so how was this for you being- Totally very similar. Like, yeah. this is very faithful to the tone set by the original. The crew beamed down to a planet that is- seemingly idyllic and then immediately start having apparently visions of things from their imagination. Yes. Bones is thinking of Alice in Wonderland and the giant rabbit bounces by, followed by a young blonde haired girl chasing the rabbit. And quickly these imaginary thoughts become real, get a little out of hand, someone gets stabbed, but it turns out it's okay because the entire planet is an amusement park and the planet's systems will repair any injury and it's all a big misunderstanding. And at the end of it, they go, wow, it's amazing. And Bones is standing there with a woman on either arm that have been conjured for him by the planet. They're both wearing apparently pom-poms, like their entire costume is made out of skillfully placed pom-poms and as much skin as possible. And uh, Kirk goes, this all checks out. Beam the whole crew down. End of episode. That's shore leave. Harash, here you go. Yeah. And this is, it is, I thought it, it was fun. It is, the original series in, is intended to be not taken too seriously. There are some good character beats in the original series where you get to see what these professionals imagine or yes. fantasize about so that it's another one of those like forcing characters to let down their guard by revealing their innermost thoughts and demons of course kirk has a fist fight with his nemesis from the academy who tells him he's a he was a walking pile of books and, and needs to loosen up so there was a lot of that in shore leave i think there was a little of that missing here it was much more plot driven than character driven this one Yes, and any time the Star Trek leans into literary inspiration, so whether it be Shakespeare or Peter Pan or Alice in Wonderland, I'm happy. And it's also sort of like that proto version of, and it's mentioned a little later on, of that kind of representation of what the holodeck later becomes. Yeah. Yeah. This, for me, might have been the high point for Uhura in the animated series. She has a 
one of those Kirk style debates with a computer where she tries to convince the computer that they are wrong right. and should change their ways. Sadly, the computer is not convinced by Uhura, but it's a great speech. And I thought gave her more to do and more agency than we got anywhere else. Yes, it's a sad state of affairs when we're reaching for those highlights. But yeah, Nichelle Nichols was powering on as the champion who was. Yeah. A uh, couple of awkward long pauses where it seems like they might have been filling time, but otherwise a solid <laughs> episode with a lot of fun stuff for the whole crew. Yes, it was. It's not one of my favorites, but it was definitely one of the better ones. And they're starting to pick up that momentum of understanding what they can do. I'd say if you were a fan who enjoyed the original, this I'd bump this up a notch um, for nostalgia as well. Number 10, Mud's Passion. We've, we've talked about bringing back old mud to really show what decade our gender politics is. Yes, he brings the what I wrote as the heteronormative love potion, where he goes out of his way to say that between a man and a woman, it creates love, but between a man and a man, it creates friendship. That's right. That's damn right. Because <laughs> that's all there is in the way of things. Yeah, it's a... Uh... Uh, yeah. Not my clunkeriest one, but I would not go out of my way to watch this. Mud is true to form. If you enjoyed the performance of Mud, you get more of that here. Yes. He is pitch perfect for all the good and bad that brings. Weird that the Enterprise uses ID cards all of a sudden. <laughs> Mud steals Nurse Chapel's ID card in order to make his escape. Yes, that's right. McCoy is sitting at a bridge station out of nowhere in this episode, and it's not commented upon. There's just suddenly a shot of McCoy sitting at what looks to be Uhura's station. <laughs> and Love Drunk Spock is the worst acting I have ever seen Leonard Nimoy do. Look, I don't know what happened there. It is. It's quite embarrassing. It's quite awkward about and how aggressive he is and how much he wants Nurse Chapel. And who, my you know, Christine. My Christine. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. He must have been given a bum steer in direction because I know he can do better than that. And oh, he's, yeah. It, it was really painful. It pulled the whole episode. An already struggling episode, it pulled it really down. Yeah, I was checking my watch a number of times to see how much longer we had. Number 11, the Territon incident. Now, this one I can't really remember that much. This is the one where they get tiny. Oh, <laughs> Okay, now I remember. Okay, yeah. so yeah, this is the one where Nurse Chapel can't save herself. Yeah, and and uh, Kirk has to throw a needle and thread that happens to be lying around in. That happens bay. to be lying around in sick bay, of course. They've got to he... they've got to stitch up some <laughs> cuts, don't they? She's in water, and Kirk throws effectively an ultra sharp spear at her in the water in order to save her. And that's heroics. The... That's heroic. You see him Kevin. throw it and it cuts to her saved. Like, we don't know what happens. Something good happens. Oh, they ran out of money. There was an elaborate sequence all worked out. I did the, it, the quite juvenile thing of going, clearly they're shrinking, but they go, no, maybe the ship is growing. Maybe the ship is growing. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that was like a mind-blowing, for me as a kid, that would have been mind-blowing. Sitting yeah. there Saturday morning, I would have been like, whoa, the ship could be growing. <laughs> But no, they go with the... No, they were shipping. They were right the first time. Yeah, they should. And that would have been more interesting in many ways, the ship growing bigger and bigger. Oh, we'll get to the giant enterprise soon enough. There is a weird shot of a dude with a mustache, a 70s mustache, and another guy with glasses. The crew is getting ready to beam up. Like the crew that has been 
kidnapped off the Enterprise and they're being held hostage in the tiny town. Yes. They're getting ready to beam up and the transporter will fix everything. That is the thing that happens again and again in yep, the anime. all the transporter. The transporter cures everything. But they're, they're getting ready to beat him up. And it's just a static shot of three people. And one of them has a 70s mustache and the other person is wearing glasses. And I was like, hold the phone. There is a story here. It turns out those are three of the animators on the show. Of they course. got permission to put themselves in the show. Excellent. Great. And then the end, at the end, it is clear they really ran out of time or money because somehow Kirk orders the ship to fire on the tiny city that they have said they are going to help. They're yes. like, we will help you. Just give us our crew back and send us all the dilithium you got. And then we'll, we'll work something out. He gets his crew back. They beam the dilithium on board. And then Kirk orders the ship to fire phasers at the city. And I'm like, what? <laughs> that seems... That's pure a, evil. Yep. And sure enough, the ship fires phasers at the city and the city appears on the transporter platform. All I can gather is someone got confused between phasers and transporters <laughs> and it got a little too far and it was too late to fix. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened. That's where yeah, it went. That's what happened. Number 12, the time trap. Yes. Now, this is... So this like a is the Enterprise and a Klingon ship both get stuck in a dimension that is full of other trapped ships. It's like the Bermuda Triangle. Yes. And they've all learned to live in harmony because they've all decided they're never getting home. Yes. And time does not progress, so none of them age either. So it's this community of previously warring races all stranded together, and they've decided, they formed a government. And That's right, peace. yes. They had the... Like the head of each representative council. That's right. Also. Yes. Yeah. I do remember that. Yes. But the Enterprise and the Klingon ship connect up and use their engines together to warp out of there and get home. That's right. It's almost foiled by the Klingons doing their dastardly deeds and being tried on penalty of removing their ship's power for many years. Yes. Again, that's yeah one uh, clearly not that memorable to me. George Takei plays a Klingon captain. And it's unconvincing, is what I wrote here. <laughs> this is where I went, okay, cool. Not everyone has the talent or experience to convincingly create multiple characters for an animated TV series. Yeah, look, yeah, Nichelle Nichols is the MVP of that. And all, all the boys are sadly falling behind. Jimmy Duan does a decent job, if you ask me. He does a lot of different characters. And in an interview I read, he was jazzed at the fact that generally he didn't put on an accent for any of them. He just put on a different quality of voice. So he was having a lot of fun creating characters without Scottish accents. I'm uh, glad yeah, he had a it. I'm glad he had a fun time. I rate this as a solid episode. I There's have to say. Look, from what from yes. Thank you for going into detail, not just for the viewers, but for me as well. Yes, I did like that concept of all these warring races that were. Yeah. It's very Star Trekky of going. We're it trapped is. here. No time is time means nothing here. So we have to work together. It's a beautiful dilemma. It is like here is the peace that feels impossible in the galaxy. They made it work. Yeah, and we are going to do our darndest to get the heck out of here because <laughs> we we want to go home. We cannot stay here. This is like far too boring. <laughs> Number 13, the Ambergris incident. Lots the, of swimming. Lots of swimming, lots of stuff that you'd never be able to do in live action. Big sea snakes and venom extraction and 
Kirk and Spock not being able to breathe oxygen, so they have to stay in. They had to convert areas of the Enterprise to be filled with water, and they sound perfectly normal, even though they're yeah. underwater. It is, on paper, it should be a really great episode. In practice, it was lots of swimming and debating, and then swimming, and then more debating and more swimming. It, was, it got tedious for me. It was good to see McCoy get some speeches as he worked through the medical puzzle of Kirk and Spock's mutation. Yes. This for me was first time we got to see McCoy doing his job. He was very doctory in this. Yeah, yeah. Very doctory going, how do we solve this? How do we figure this out? Yeah. Yeah. A novelty, but not especially good, this one, I think. Yeah. It came across a far more kitty than it should, even though it was like mm. boring stretches of talking and discussing and stuff. But that's the whole thing of let's turn our characters into now underwater creatures. It's very Mario putting on a penguin suit. If, uh, yeah. They, yeah. Anyway, number 14, The Slaver Weapon. This was really good. Oh, yeah? I like this one. and We it, might it, disagree for the first time. <laughs> and it was particularly interesting because there was no Kirk. Yeah. And so it was just a way mission. So it was Spock, Uhura, and Sulu uh, out on their runabout and finding a rare I did artifact. like that. Fit, that made it felt like a Next Generation episode. Yes. There are a yeah. few great Next Generation episodes that are like, we're away from the ship on our shuttle or on our runabout. And it's a odd combination of characters and we got that here it felt ahead of its time in that respect and this is adapted by larry niven on his own story the Ooh. soft weapon yeah great great star trek writer larry niven yeah yeah i liked the there was a yeah there was just a confidence to it there was a, a and seeing the dynamic of those three characters who you know especially with sulu and or not getting that many episodes in the forefront but to have the three of them out on this away mission was great. And there's a definite threat there and a definite developing of the history of a culture, which I kind of like. I think what hurt this one in my eyes was that the what happened again and again and again in this episode was it's let's see what the next setting does. Yeah. Oh, it's also a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you put it like that, yes. It was a long build up to a punchline that was pretty good. I don't. I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen it. But let's just say this is the only episode of the animated series that has confirmed kills in it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, but it took a long time to get to where it was going, and it was fairly repetitive in the process. But I did like many of the elements. Yeah, yeah, there were elements I really liked about it, and that's one that definitely stuck out to me of the away mission. And the writing definitely seemed a lot more confident, and definitely understood the characters of Star Trek more. Not one of your two best, though. Not one of my two best. The next one is one of my best. Number 15, Eye of the Beholder. Oh, look, I'm a huge Twilight Zone fan, and I love those type of episodes where it's like a step in the bizarre and the odd for 20 minutes or so, and then you get out. And so this one explores something that's been explored in the Twilight Zone before is humans in a zoo. The, big snuffleupaguses. The, and I love the creatures. I love yeah. the big red snuffleupagus characters. And even the baby was huge. And yeah. Scotty having to learn how to communicate with it. And a lot of talk about these creatures are eons old. And that that great human entitlement of going, but we're, zoos are kept for animals. Goes, Guess what? Guess what? To this species... Yeah. We are the animals. And just things like always observing them and could get inside Kirk's mind. That was great. Oh, my head acting of uh, yeah. Shatner, which was great. 
And the and at the end they go because they were telepathic uh, stuff a laugh a guy, and that moment of going we might be ready for them or we might be ready for them in two or three millennia. Yeah, <laughs> and Kirk goes, well, that'll be somebody else's problem. So much of what this episode does ends up being cliche in Star Trek, but it was fresh at this time. Yes. And I agree. This is a great episode. I love, this is a Kirk, Spock, McCoy adventure. Yes. Three mains beam down and there's plenty of bickering and it is entertaining throughout. The writing here was pitch perfect. This to me is the best characterization that we get in the animated series. Very much so. And they're all playing their roles. So you've got Kirk going, but what is this? And and Spock going, this is not everything's all about you, Jim. And McCoy going, shut up, you. <laughs> you square? I admire the restraint never to let us hear the telepathic thoughts of the aliens. Like yeah. we're told they're telepathic. There are long lingering shots of these two pink snuffleupaguses on the screen looking really silly, but they're having deep thoughts at each other. And we are left to imagine what deep words they are exchanging. A, a, a less confident show would have employed someone to do an echoey voice with a bit of theremin behind it to tell us what they were saying. But instead, it's left to the imagination and it elevates it oh. a great deal for me. And it was that, for me, it was a, the perfect representation of the animation that you would never get creatures that size yeah. and that design who are so non-human in the live action original series. So to have that moment of these are huge. You see the scale of them. And I love that, that classic cliche sci-fi thing of going, we're the, we're not animals. Well, to them, we are that, that type of <laughs> stuff, that type of stuff I love. Yeah. Okay. So that's one of your first best. I agree with that. That's a four out of five. It's right up there. It's not hey. quite my best though. Number 16, The Jihad, our from, season finale for season one. From the highest of highs, we <laughs> go to the lowest of lows. This was my clunker. Okay, go for it. I want to hear all about um, it. Look, I love the idea of a range of aliens trapped on a planet, all different types. So we had Bird Boy, we had Green Slug, we had Mono-Browed Amazon Woman. But it's even with the title Jihad, and with the grossly outdated gender politics stuff there. And it's just like trying to do this whole epic quest type thing, but it just seemed to be going through. We're just walking. And yeah. oh, now we're flying. Now we're driving. Now we're driving. And Here now comes we're- the lava, drive faster. <laughs> now, oh, here's the sachet. And and you could spot the, the betrayer a million miles away. So the, there's a lot of awkward stuff in there. And this it, is the most Saturday morning cartoon yes. episode of the series. And I think it, it speaks volumes that makes it your clunker in many ways. This says, oh, let's go up on the hill and push that boulder down to block <laughs> the lava. Like it is very comic, like pulp comic stuff. Yes. Very broad strokes. And the brief was apparently like, make as much adventure happen in 30 minutes as you can. And despite DC Fontana's best efforts to keep out the sex, the the creepy Amazon woman constantly just going, hey, Kirk, how you going there? You're the most charitable reading I can give of it is that it was boundary smashing at the time that, that the the... Creepy person cracking on to other characters would be a woman. What? <laughs> like that's as charitable a take I can as I can get on this, but it feels 
frankly out of place on a show for children. No, you're right. It's very much like Tar. It is the equivalent of Kate Blanchett's performance in Tar. It should be given an Oscar. What? I was at Tar was originally written as a male character and then they went, no, let's flip it and make this horrible conductor type abusing their position of power, make it a woman. I don't get that reference. So on the one hand, I kind of want to watch it, but your testimonial is not strong, so maybe (laughs) I won't. Oh, look, it's getting all the acclaim and all the regard. Unlike Jihad, the episode. Much was made at the time of the mature themes in this episode, and it wasn't the uh, super randy woman it was the talk of holy wars and yes. jihads and these, which were very political concepts at the time in the world and kids being presented with those ideas. Mommy, daddy, what's a holy war? Like the makers of the show were feeling like they were running some risks with prompting those kind of conversations at home. Yes. And it seems, I don't know if it's my sensitivity or white guilt or anything like that but those type of terminologies and stuff like that seem to be in better suited in the hands of of people connected with that culture as opposed to yeah white culture going ah let's do this way and also it's one thing to decide to take a swing at mature concepts like that but to do it in such a juvenile episode of television yeah it doesn't do it any justice to have it in the background while you're focusing on let's push this boulder let's chase this lava i do like the the bird-like creatures though i wish they could appear in some way shape or form in live action it really stood out to me against all the other episodes of the animated series that like they brought all their guest cast into this one episode. Most of the other episodes of the animated series, there are the familiar voices and then there are the episodic characters that are also voiced by the same actors. Of course, more yes. Or less. And you might have one unfamiliar voice. Yes. This one, it was like, let's take let's take Kirk and is it Kirk and Spock? Yes. Yeah, let's take Kirk and Spock and surround them by a bunch of strangers that are all voiced by guest actors that, uh, like, uh, what I wrote here is, were they cheaper than our regular cast? This seemed to me like what the intent for the series originally must have been. Yes. You get Kirk and Spock and you surround them with some voices of the week. And do a lot of pushing over boulders and chasing lava and all that type of fun adventure stuff as opposed to... Let's do hardcore sci-fi stuff. So maybe it's also the end of season type of splurge. Oh, yeah, we got maybe. a bit of it was the maybe yeah. they had some guest Left stars. Left over the cash, yeah. Too. <laughs> <laughs> They'd already been paid, and they needed to use somebody them else's wife or husband or yeah. loved one. Yeah. Season two, number one, the Pirates of Orion. This is one of my two favorites. Oh, explain. The opening of this episode is that there is a disease on board the Enterprise, but McCoy says, I cured it. It's fine. I'm really proud of myself. (laughs) Just recording a log as my victory lap for having cured this disease. And then Spock drops out cold on the bridge of the Enterprise. Turns out Vulcans are not as immune to this disease as McCoy thought they would be. Kirk calls for help from sickbay, even though McCoy is standing next to him (laughs) on the bridge, which I thought was especially cold of McCoy. (laughs) I'm sure it was a mistake, but what my read of it is that Kirk knows that McCoy is not going to lift a finger to save Spock's life. <laughs> Low-budget animation jank aside, I thought this was a strong episode. It would have gone down like a lead balloon with the kids watching Saturday morning cartoons, though. 
But it was clearly a team determined to make more Star Trek at any cost. The fight to save Spock's life by engaging in a subtle manipulation of these Orion pirates who needed to save face. Yes, that's right. There are like three concepts there that most kids watching, it's going to go straight over their heads. The idea that the Orions have stolen something and we know they've stolen something. They know we know they've stolen something, but neither party can say you've stolen something because then Spock will die. Instead, Kirk has to go through this charade of letting them off the hook and preserve their neutrality. And then eventually they beam down to a planet and have a fist fight, which every good Star Trek episode needs. God. Bomb is diffused at the last minute by beaming the dilithium on board the ship. And then the Orion captain tries to commit suicide with a cyanide capsule and they prevent him from doing it. So he has, he no longer has any reason for his ship to self-destruct. His ship is preparing to self-destruct. So there is no evidence of their guilt, but they've managed to capture the captain alive. So the captain calls his ship and says, cancel the self-destruct, we've lost. There is, this is such, it is more complex than nine out of 10 Star Trek episodes. Yeah. I am here for it. There's a lot of, yeah, and showing that the cleverness of Kirk to manipulate and play the situation while still working on the clock of going, we've got to save, we've got to save Spock. So there's a lot there and the culture of the Orion pirates and their honor and all that type of stuff to have explored is heady stuff for a 25 minute animated kids show. Yeah, absolutely. This episode was written by the youngest writer in Star Trek history. He was a 19-year-old college student when he submitted his script on typed on loose leaf paper. I'm showing a picture of that to Rob right now. It's amazing. The creators of the show called him up and said, oh, we haven't seen your name around. Uh, What else have you written? And he's like, "Uh, I'm a college student. I've never written anything in my life. And they said, that's fine. It's a great script. And And that's uh, that's Howard Weinstein. Yeah, it's awesome. Well done, Howard, on a great opener for season two. Yeah, I loved it. The Pirates of Orion. They look weird. Like they are, there is a, you could tell that there was a changing of the guard in the creative leadership because they mispronounce Orion as Orions. That's right. Even though they are, by all by all accounts, meant to be the same green skin aliens that we have seen previously in Star Trek history and that we now see in Star Trek Discovery. But they're all wearing like, swim like scuba suits and masks and goggles in this episode that's right yeah no apparent reason and they have blue skin instead of green that's right but uh, but yeah it's uh, that's the jank that's the low budget jank i was talking about but underneath that surface is a really strong star trek script and that's the thing that's how i missed the connection because it's mispronounced and they're blue and on there going yeah, I missed the whole, it went completely out of my head. No, they're the Orions, remember the green they're ones? The, they're the yeah. Tendi Orions yeah. pirates. Uh, and yeah, and like we talked about, all the Orions now, all the males are like really buff, apparently. They have big square like jaws. square jaws, yeah. yeah. Episode two, Bem. Yes, I don't remember much about Bem. This is the alien that can split himself into multiple parts. Yes, all that's like the top goes off running. In the and bottom. we've yes. had a return of that species in Lower Decks. We have had a Lower Decks guest star. That yes, was, yeah, that's he's right. Like the, the trainer who is putting the crew through the holodeck simulations. That's right, yes. And we can see that his species has been 
assessing the skills of Starfleet crews for many years by that That's time. That's right. Uh, tracing way back to this episode in which, yeah, he deliberately gets himself captured by some primitive aliens who are referred to as Aborigines in, That's this, right. in this episode. <laughs> That's right. I do remember that. And uh, yeah, gets himself tracked. And then when Kirk and Spock get captured as well, trying to rescue him, he goes, wow, you are incompetent. This was a test and you failed. <laughs> That's right. And they need to figure out, because the, they don't know at the first that he can separate his bodies. That's and, right. Yeah. yeah. So he gets through the bramble bush by separating. He's a colony character. There's the funny gag in the start where they beam down and Kirk and Spock beam down over water and fall in the water. Yes. So he that's jumps right. in and then he disconnects his bottom half to go and steal their communicators. That's right. Yes. And then the little technical things come out. Yeah. And it goes, well, we don't have our communicators anymore, Spock. Yeah. Yeah. There's some good parts here, but it adds up to a pretty weak episode in my mind. Yep. I'd go with that too. Absolutely. Because <laughs> I can barely remember that you explained it. Went, oh, that's right. I do remember that. <laughs> There's a, this is a stronger example of Uhura taking command because she does take command. And then Scotty wants to go down and rescue Kirk and Spock against orders. And Uhura, speaking to a superior officer, says, no, I'm, I was left in command. We have our orders. We're not deviating from those orders. That's right. She quotes regulations to Scotty, and it's a power move. It's really good. Uhura, or Nichelle Nichols, also plays the voice of the sparkly cloud god creature at the end that's, that's really right. upset yep. that they are all uh, interfering with her children. That's right, yes. Yeah, so Nichelle Nichols gets a good outing in this one, but that's about all I can say for this episode. So next up, we go to The Practical Joker. The Practical Joker. Now, for me, this was another one of my uh, top choices. Ooh, wow. Okay. I really liked the silliness of the practical jokes and everyone laughing and the fact that great reveal of it's actually the ship. It's the computer. The ship is the practical joker. The, the, yeah. the, the, the computer has developed, gone awry. And it, yeah, there's there was just something in it. It was a breath of fresh air for me. And I like that type of that. Uh, Star Trek awkward. It's sort of like their approach to sex. Is there yeah. also their approach to a sense of humor? I'm there going, I don't know if anybody on this crew has ever laughed before. Yeah. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. <laughs> they have never used those muscles in their body at all. But there was something acute and clever about this regimented, serious exploration team. I agree. Broken. This is the only time we got to hear some of our original series crew laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them I don't need to hear it again. Never uh, again. No, yeah. that that one one was too many. But there was I a agree. This is a fresh one. I think this for me is the most successful example of what Star Trek, if written as a Saturday morning cartoon, could have been. Yes. It was not taking itself too seriously. It was having fun. It was playing with very broad strokes, but that that worked here. The ship creates a blow up balloon version of the Enterprise that's much larger in order to scare off the Romulans. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> but and the episode does end with an awkward thing of the Romulans computer starts getting the same That's right. Thing, it's and the they trouble just, with tribbles all over again. Yeah, and oh. they do the whole oh Romulan. We'll, and we'll tell go, them how to fix it later. <laughs> <laughs> now was it in this one where they were there was some people in something like the holodeck. A, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. This, I wrote an impressively full-formed vision of the holodeck. 
Unlike the other week when we were talking about holodeck episodes, and I said the first couple of Star Trek The Next Generations where they did a holodeck story, there was a lot of characters standing around in wonder at the technology <laughs> and the story was put on pause for a few moments while people said, wow, it is amazing that this is even possible. <laughs> they move past that much more quickly in this episode, yes. making it normal for the characters and therefore magical for us. Yes. Yeah, it covered a lot. It had that holodeck. It had the, I like a mischievous computer reveal as well. Like it's, you know, the ship, the thing that keeps us safe is actually turning against us is a wonderful idea. And mm. yes, hearing these humanoids do something called laugh for the first time ever is a joy. <laughs> so yeah, I really dug it. I liked the breath of fresh air that it was. And yeah, that's one I'd, go, I'd actually go back and watch that again. Yeah, great. Episode four, Albatross. This was a good one as well. This is my other favorite episode. Hey! Uh, Albatross in which McCoy previously cured a plague or worked to cure a plague on a planet and they come back expecting everything will be fine and everything does go fine until they're just about to beam up and they slap McCoy with a warrant. And, and they're say, so polite about it going, well, yeah, this has been a pleasure being here. If oh, you have a moment for one more thing, we have a little rest. <laughs> we have a little for you. Oh, yes. You are public enemy number one. <laughs> we've been holding our tongues this whole time. <laughs> oh, we can't believe we're happening now. It's, we've done so well. <laughs> um, and they capture McCoy and basically this culture is reputed for swift justice slash show trials. And the fear is that McCoy is going to be put to death for his crimes against this species because he is accused of basically causing uh, a, a plague. Yes, that wiped out their sister planet. And uh, the Enterprise, racing the clock, goes to the sister planet in order to figure out, find some evidence of McCoy's innocence, which they take on faith. And I kind of love that, that it, like, that is some classic Star Trek where not a moment is spent contemplating the possibility of McCoy's guilt. It's just, just like, go. well, obviously he's a saint. Let's go fix this. <laughs> Yeah, uh, friends looking after friends. They just go. He would never do that type of thing. Let's go. Yeah, and they, is this the episode where everyone goes blue? Yes, except the plague for... is one of the big symptoms of the plague. Supposedly, is that people change color from this to that to the other, and, and it's it like and yellow it to green to blue right. or something. And like it that. doesn't affect Spock because, of course, it doesn't. Of course, it doesn't. Because no. he's green blooded Vulcan. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the ship flies through a, a suspiciously colorful nebula on the way, and then it flies through the same suspiciously colorful nebula on the way back. And it turns out the changing colors is a false symptom. Like it is something that happened at the same time as the plague and was assumed to be a symptom of the plague. But in fact, it was a red herring. And as soon as you told the computer to stop trying to match against changing skin colors, the computer was able to identify the plague and synthesize a cure. And I just really, that is a plot twist that... Feels like it could have been overdone, but I've never seen it before. And it's always good to have a bit of the, the character's past and to talk about McCoy before he was on the Enterprise or stuff like that. It's always good to have that expansion of our characters, yeah. so that how they lived and breathed before they had the safety of the Enterprise. 
It's not lost on me that my two favorite episodes are Racing the Clock to Save the Life of One of Our Favorite Cast Members. Yes. It was Spock in The Pirates of Orion, and it's McCoy here. That that does seem a little over to done by this point, but it's okay. The series was about to end, so I'll give it to them. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the third last episode, so well done to them. I thought the aliens here were really interesting too. Like it, they had the novelty of being completely different from, like they had, they were humanoids, but with completely different proportions, really yes. big detailed heads and really stompy elephant feet. And it was, and yet they were very full formed, like their face moved in interesting ways. They went beyond the novelty of let's draw something funny looking. To, it felt like they actually thought through how would these things move? How would these things speak? Yes, and their culture as well about the politeness and the rituals and the rules that they follow and their guidelines that they, we will have you on our planet for this time. But at the very last moment, we will bring out the thing that we've been wanting to do this entire time. And they're just like, this is our procedure. This is how we do things. Yeah. And great Number title as well. Great title. Oh, yeah, exactly. For the final two. How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth, Episode 5. This is the one with... Kukulkan. I said Quetzalcoatl before, but I meant Kukulkan. That's, yes. And this was, yeah, they just happened to have a crew member who is, yeah, he has never shown up before. And Native has, American. Native American, and it's related to his culture. And it takes the and form of Kukulkan. It seems that is what won them the Emmy here, is that representation of Native American culture in the future was as groundbreaking as having a black woman at comms and a Japanese man at, at the helm like that. It was that level of breakthrough for representation at the time that Native Americans had a place in the future and they hadn't fully assimilated into white people culture in order to do it. And especially within American culture, especially watching from the outside Australia, we are uh, incredibly guilty of what we have done to our, in our First Nations culture. But as what I noticed from the outside with the US, it's, yeah, the Native American cultures and nations are not really, never have really had a voice. You know, it's always the, obviously the injustices of the slave labor and all this and slave slavery and all that type of stuff in the civil rights movement and white on black, but the, the Native American culture and race, like you hear the languages of, of all the Native American cultures are dying out because the youth aren't learning it and that's happening here in australia as well and so to have yeah this represented and it's a little bit clumsy with chakotay um yeah. and how they try to bring that in and he's not actually yeah. a native american actor so yes i was a little bit i took a step back at the start going this seems white people trying to white right it's for. slightly tokenistic in hindsight for sure yeah Maybe more than slightly. Like, they lay it on pretty thick. As in, it's, yeah, it's the representation of pure... Never seen before, never, never seen, seen again. again. That is and the definition the of And the plot of the episode just happens to have to do with recognizing Native American culture. And for the only time a Native American crewman is on the deck at that time. So it is the definition of token, but... Yeah, reflecting on it, it goes, look, it's better that they did it as a tribute and an honor as opposed to not doing it at all. Also won a Peabody Award in 1975. Oh, that, hey, that's nothing to be sniffed at. But yeah, this episode has this really cool looking ship that kind of looks like a dragon. Yes. And then it takes on this holographic mantle around it that really makes it look like a dragon. And then it turns out it's being flown by 
a flying dragon. So there's <laughs> dragons upon dragons here. Introduces himself as Kukul Khan, returned to to take care of his children once more, the primitive people of Earth. He, sorry, he's, daddy stepped away, but he's back. He had things uh, to do. He had to go out for some cigarettes. Yeah, but he will only not kill you if you can solve his riddle and he he gave us all the parts to solve the riddle before and he was very disappointed that we didn't put it together he's going to give us one more try now that you know there's a riddle see if you can solve it and they solve it in like 30 seconds it's like (laughs) the most basic video game riddle i've ever seen of there is a pyramid and there are four mirrors on swiveling statues what should i do Let's try pointing the mirrors at the top of the pyramid. You solved it! My children, all is forgiven. You're a genius. You're a genius, Kevin. Yeah, the, the color scheme for this is great. There's some beautiful colors and representation here to outside of the usual color schemes that they had. Yeah, Lots there's... of weird animals. Like, he's got all the other primitive animals yeah. stuck in, like, fantasy worlds in glass cages on his ship. That's right. So, uh, return of that primitive species captured for a zoo like this is it's starting to get done it's done after this that's what i'm gonna say (laughs) let's do one more episode and then never do it again of all the times star trek has done the a god from ancient history turns out to have been an alien visitor that trope and we've seen it many times this is one of the more successful ones i agree and it's got dragons upon dragons so the more dragons the better and the final episode, season two, episode six, The Counterclock Incident. That's right, with the famous old Captain Admiral, who we've never heard of before, shows up with his wife, and they start getting younger. But then they Captain decide- Robert April. That's right. But he decides at the end, you know, we don't want to go young again. We want to be- <laughs> We've lived a good life. We Make lived us a good... old again. And because of their bravery- you know what? Because it's going to be obsolete, which is quite telling, considering they explore that in the movies in the eighties yeah. about the about the obsolete. The old warrior captain, ready to retire. But I love that. I lo- for one more, one more mission, and yeah. to, to determining whether he's still worthwhile or whether he can still get back on that horse and ride in. And yes, some of the dialogue is very awkward, and yeah. it matches the awkward animation of the couple standing there, look like going, yes. This is what we're doing now, and yeah. now we're relevant. No, we're getting younger. You're so beautiful. <laughs> uh, Robert April was one of the original names considered for Christopher Pike, hey. original pilot. So the the writer's bible, when the series finally got off the ground, had some names of past captains of the Enterprise, and Robert April was in there. So they were tapping like a little-known detail of Star Trek lore that hadn't made it to screen yet. Which was great to see. Do we know his positioning of where he is? Was he immediately? He was before, before Pike. It was so April, he immediately before Pike, Kirk. Right. Okay. Cool. 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 Yeah, I believe that's correct. And and we get to see Robert April again in the premiere of Strange New Worlds last year. So the guy who's the Black Admiral who comes to visit Christopher Pike on his ranch and say, "Your ship needs you, Chris." That is that is also Robert April. So that's that right. And he appeared again. Colorblind casting, and he's great. And he was in it again in a later one when they're trying yeah. to do the negotiations. That's right. And they're doing the checklist. So the B plot is the checklist. Yeah. 
Oh, yes. Now I get The detail I had no idea to expect was that his wife was chief medical officer on the ship at the same time, and they, like, served together. Well, there you go. That's got to break some Starfleet HR regulations. For Gene Roddenberry, it's totally a part and parcel <laughs> with writing Star Trek. Am I right? Getting you? Yeah, look, for the, like, as a final episode, there's a lot more put into what a final episode is because we've been so used to now what the modern definition of a season finale is. But at this point, it was just a case of this was procedural television, as in you write a story, you finish it, you finish up your number of episodes for the season, and then you move on and you come back and you do the exact same thing the next year. So there's no sort of like build up, no story arcs, no, yeah, especially putting all that onus onto a character we haven't seen of. It's beautiful to have that sort of continuity tip of the hat, but they take the major focus in this final episode with the lead characters taking more of a supporting role. I think this episode came in hot. Some notes in the book that I have of Star Trek, the official guide to the animated series, where the writer of this episode was on staff and knew there were six slots and knew they had filled five of them. So he had to submit the script today or he might miss out. (laughs) And so I think some of that rush is visible in the final product. There is a lot of befuddling logic in the reverse universe that they go into that causes everyone to start getting younger. It is very tortured and my read of it, it is all there just to justify the gag of getting to see younger and younger versions of our of familiar cast members seeing yeah. baby uhura and preteen spock it's like the visual the sight gag is neat but they have to take a real long walk to get there yes and it's again it's one of those childhood animation gimmicks so like now they're underwater so there's an underwater version now it's the yeah. baby version now it's yeah, the yeah. giant version yeah yeah So they didn't really do any body swap ones, but they transformed the bodies into many different variations. There was an echo of Discovery. Like the latest season of Discovery, there are a number of scenes of exposition where our characters all stand around a giant galactic map and explain the plot that is about to happen. Yeah. And that happens here. They stand in front of a giant galactic map and they point at stars and they're like, that one's going to turn supernova in our universe at the same time as the other one is going to be a new star in the other universe. And if, because those two things are happening at the same time, we'll be able to travel between those two points. And it's like, oh gosh, (laughs) I guess you explained it, but it was not worth it. Yeah. Don't overthink it too much. Just look at the pretty colors and move on. And the ship flies backwards for some reason, like they could have done a lot more waving away of the attempt at science here and created more time for a satisfying story, I thought. I agree. And so it does leave a bit of a, oh, that's it. Now we're done. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. But baby Uhura sitting on the bridge is pretty cute. It's very cute. Very cute. You cannot deny that. So yeah, so that, there you go. Th- that the is it. This series. Our blow by blow. I, I have a parting question for you, Rob, which is, does it hold up? If someone out there is listening and like us a few weeks ago has seen a lot of Star Trek, they like a lot of Star Trek, but they've not seen the animated series, do you recommend the experience? Look, yeah, you've asked two different things. (laughs) Mm. I recommend the experience because as a completist Star Trek, now I have to go back and watch all the other ones that I've missed. Yes, so there is some elements in there that you need to see. 
and moments you need to go, oh, this is good. And you need to go through the same cringes that we did. It doesn't hold up, sadly. I wanted it to be so I have good. to agree, yeah. And I think I'm warped by how modern animation of spin-offs of our shows are now after mm. especially coming off lower decks and prodigy and my love of rebels and bad batch and clone wars from star wars i'm in that headspace where i'm going that's what i expect and i was wanting this to go well especially because i'm going so much of the original cast is back so much of the original writers i know their mentality of what they're going for and what we've been finding out at every obstacle there was just something getting in their way and mm. the cast didn't want to really be there and cast who did want to be there got to write and they didn't want to be doing that so there's all these obstacles taking away from the experience yeah sadly it doesn't hold up but it is <laughs> it i will say it's not it is now essential it is essential watching Yes, certainly modern Star Trek has leaned back into some of those stories and pulled some details forward and therefore like settled any question of is it canon? Did it really happen? The that decision is made now. This is real Star Trek. Yep. And it's what Star Trek was at the time for all of its faults and yep. all of its highs and lows. It was trying things. There's some new ideas in there. There's rehashing old clichés. There is uh, incredibly outdated and quite infuriating issues of gender politics and race and all that type of stuff that we have seen with watching the original series. Mm. But what it was striving for and what it was reaching for beyond the constraints of its the society it was in is admirable to see. As a true fourth season of Star Trek, what the best praise I can give it is that the worst episodes are no worse than the worst episodes of season three of the original series. Yeah. And the best episodes are right up there with the best that Star Trek gave us in season three. Yeah, I'd say that as well. And there are some embarrassing episodes of Star Trek from the 90s, from mm. the noughties, from the last couple of years. So it's not a case of this is an anomaly of embarrassing, cringeworthy yeah. stories or embarrassing moments of going, oh God, I can't believe they did that. I'm going, oh, I've watched, <laughs> I've been catching up on Picard. So there are some moments where I'm going, <laughs> I have the similar thoughts that I had while watching the animated series. There, there are some good ones here. There have been suggestions that this series should be remastered or reanimated using the original voices. Having watched it, I would say, don't do that. No. On the whole, there is more le that is best left to history than is worth bringing into the present of this, production values. Yeah. But there might be one or two or three or four bright spots here that if they, as a one-off, as a bonus feature, as an internet webisode, if they did want to apply the Lower Decks 2D animation polished version to it, I would definitely rewatch it in that form. Yeah, it would be interesting to see as a bit of it coming up to the 60th anniversary of Star Trek. Maybe a little bit of a little treat for the fans. Take one or two of the particularly special ones and mm. give them a bit of a, an update, keeping the original dialogue and actually have the opening credits with the actual theme music. Oh, Imagine yeah. that. Imagine that. So that's it. That's it. We've gone from going to talk about one or two of our good ones and one or two of our worst ones to just going through every single one. Your memory was amazing. Mine was disappointing. But that's okay. You did it without notice, Rob. I am. I marvel at 
the attempt. <laughs> Thank you so much. So this was our way of filling in the hiatus from Star Trek. Yes. But we are next time we speak, we will be arguing about whether Star Trek Picard season three is living up to our increasingly unreasonable expectations. Look, and I'm looking forward to you, you, you me doing this podcast. I had to go th- through and watch season two of Picard, which I had been told not to watch, and I'm watching it going. All right, I can see why. But low expectations can help, though, Rob. Did low, they help? Uh, oh, look, yeah, they did help. I actually enjoyed more of it than I thought I would. But then I get to the ending where I'm there going, what are you doing? <laughs> why are you embracing Q like he is an old friend? This does not make any sense. But, yes, I am looking forward to Yeah, The expectations are high. Everyone yeah. has gone, no, season three is, this is do or die. And, it's going to uh, be something. It is. And if in doubt, we've got a strange new worlds coming out at some point. And we've, as you just said to me, Prodigy season two is coming out some Confirmed point this year. for 2023. We're not going to have to wait as long until no. we see what happens next. Oh yeah. And there's also the final season of Discovery. And Oh yeah. Yeah. But I've got to catch up on that as well. Damn you, Kevin Yang. <laughs> making me watch the stuff that I stopped watching. See you around the galaxy, Rob. See you around soon. Looking forward to getting back onto some new Star Trek. <laughs>